Yeah, thumbs up. Okay, great. Well, hi everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, if you were there last uh, two weeks ago, it was also really good to see you then. But I'm thankful for Zoom too. Um, so the high schoolers are meeting in person right now. Uh, they're outside, and we'll be meeting in person, Lord willing, next week. So if you didn't get a chance to come two weeks ago, you get a chance to come next week. Um, some announcements. After preaching, we'll have small groups. Um, because we didn't have time for games, we'll actually be basically spending more time in small groups. Um, you can hang out, you can just talk about the discussion questions of the sermon longer, um, or you can just talk about life and, and catch up that way too. Um, there should have been notes sent to you, but let me put the link in the chat once again, just in case. So if you need the notes, you can go ahead and go there. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm chapter 2, and we'll be preaching from there tonight. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Um, thanks for, thanks Zach and thanks Justin for helping me out with all the Zoom stuff. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please pray with me. Father, who will not fear you, and who will not glorify your name, Lord? You sit in majesty, enthroned above the heavens, and you see everything, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we walk through the psalm together to see your kingliness, to see your greatness, to see your glory, and to worship you and your Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is in his perfect name we pray. Amen. Give me one second. I need to plug my laptop so it doesn't die. All right, great. So for many months now, we have walked through the book of Mark, trying to answer the question, who is the real Jesus? Right. Who is the real Jesus? Uh, today, I want to take a break and basically um, 
look at the same question from a different angle, right? So we're going to the book of Psalms today, as you can tell, and we just read Psalm 2. Now, I'm sure you could tell that Psalm 2 is a kingly psalm, right? A kingly psalm. It's all about God, the king, and God's chosen king. God's king is the son of God. He's the king who inherits the nations, who possesses the earth, who breaks and shatters his enemies, who rules and reigns over all. He is the king of kings. Now, on his face, this psalm is not a feel-good psalm, right? It's, it's not a God loves you psalm. It's not a God cares for you psalm. It's a battle cry. It's, it's fire from heaven. It's a declaration of war. But if we understand it rightly, this psalm is exactly what we need. God's kingship is the answer to our anxieties. As I see our world descending into chaos, I'm anxious about the future. Um, I don't know what it'll look like to live in a world where people disagree over what a boy is or what a girl is. I don't know what it'll be like to live in a world where people think killing babies before they're born is good, or in a world where people think they can marry anyone or anything. Who will give me peace and comfort for the days ahead? God's kingship is the answer to our hopelessness in our world. People are getting shot and killed in the streets. The foundations of society are really crumbling right before us, and people are calling what is good evil, and what is evil good. We can't save ourselves from this mess. So who will come and make all things right? God's kingship is also the answer to death. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how tall you are, how strong you are, how much money you have, you have, how important you are, you will die. And after death comes eternity. It's either heaven or hell, blessing or torment, joy or suffering. And if your eternity is not secure in your mind, then yeah, you have a reason to fear death. Who will save your soul? Who will deliver us from the body of this death, from sin in the grave? Who? I'll tell you who. It's God, the King. He's a just King. He's a righteous King. He's a mighty King. He's a merciful King. He's my King. But is he your King? Is he your King? The key idea for tonight is pretty simple. It's submit to God, for he is king. Submit to God, for he is king. Now, Psalm 2 is like a play with four scenes that declare God's kingship. So let's behold our great king. The first scene, witness the rebellion. The play opens with a scene on earth. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This means that the peoples of the earth, they rage, they, they rebel, they roar. Why? What, what are they up to? Right. Verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, and let's cast away their cords from us. Or to put verse 3 into our modern day speech. We don't need God. We don't need his rules. We don't need anything that he gives to us. Let's rebel. This is our world. We are gods. We will define what's good and evil, what's moral, what's immoral, what's right and what's wrong, what's life and what's death. We'll be rich. We'll be strong. We will fight against God and against his anointed king, and we will win. There's only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love God and those who hate God. There's no middle ground. There's no waffling. You're either in submission to the king 
or you're in rebellion against that king. The world and its systems are in rebellion against God. Kings, governors, rulers, dictators, presidents, politicians, the vast majority are in rebellion against God and his kingdom. With very little exception, this is the mentality of the companies that create your social media. This is the mentality of the architects that create your video games. This is the mentality of the content creators that you watch on YouTube. They don't love God. They hate him. They say, we don't need God. Let's get rid of his chains. This is the default attitude of all sinners. But that means that apart from the power of God, we're just like these kings. That you and I are against, are against God, that we're rebelling against God. By nature and choice, we're rebels in his kingdom. That's how it's been all the way since Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. So if you could, I actually want to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see where it all begins. Put your finger in Psalm 2 and flip over to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter, or Genesis, and go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you hear Satan's enticement of Eve? He says, you won't die for your sin. You'll live. You'll know what's good and what's evil. You get to make the rules. You will be like God. And if you're like God, you don't need God. Tear off his chains. Cast away his laws. Be your own woman. Be your own queen. Adam and Eve believed the lie. And they rebelled against God. They sinned. And in, and because of that, they died. They didn't know good and evil. When Adam sinned, in him we too all sinned. We're sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, inheritors of the sin nature. Rebels, sinners, enemies of God. We may not be the kings and rulers of the earth, but we actually are very much like them. When you pretend you don't hear your parents telling you to stop playing video games, or when you forget, forget, to do your chores at home, or when you expect your parents or your roommates to cook, or your siblings to cook and clean and clothe you as if you were the king or the queen of the house. When you mock your siblings for their stupidity. When you refuse to share your favorite snack or favorite toy. When you stew in your selfishness and insist on your own way. When you boil in your impatience at a coworker or a classmate. When you neglect your responsibilities because of your laziness. Or when you define yourself, live for yourself, and indulge in yourself. What is that but rebellion against God the King? He told us, remember, to love him with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourself. What is sin but to make yourself king or queen? So we, with all the kings of the earth, 
stand condemned. How will God answer such a rebellion? How will he deal with sinners like you and me? In part two of our play, the scene shifts and we enter heaven to see God. Second scene, fear the king. Verse four says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is a reverence to God on his throne. As one translation puts it, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. These three kings, or excuse me, these kings of the earth, they're like tiny kings. But this one, this God, he is the true king of heaven and of earth. And he, la he laughs in mockery of these kings. He ridicules them. I mean, think of it. If you heard of a bunch of mice talking and saying to one another, come, let us build a tower to the moon to eat it because it's made of cheese. You laugh because it's so ridiculous. Right? If you saw an office floor full of dogs sitting at computers, hatching a plot to steal all the treats of the world, you laugh because it's completely delusional. If you heard of a bunch of first graders saying, come on, we don't need these teachers. Let's take over the school and we'll run it our way. You laugh because it's so foolish. In a similar way then, what does the creator God do when he sees tiny humans, creatures made of dust, finite mortals like us, scheming to kick him off of his throne? He laughs. It's ridiculous. It's delusional. It's foolish. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Psalm 7 says that God is a righteous judge, a God who has indignation, that means anger, every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Now God is not some grandpa in a rocking chair, tis tissing at sin, poo-pooing all the evil in the world. He's a warrior king. He's a righteous judge. He's a champion with a sword and a bow. He kills, he punishes, he judges, he condemns, he destroys, he obliterates. When he speaks in wrath, the whole world trembles. When he shouts in his anger, the kings are terrified. And they should be. Psalm 76 says that, God, you, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? And the implied answer is, no one, no one can. Jesus himself says in Luke 12, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If you cheated on your history test, you'd be right to fear your teacher. If you stole from your parents, you'd be right to fear your parents. If you lied about how long you practiced piano, you'd be right to fear your music instructor. How much more then ought we to fear God who sees our every deed? How much more then ought we to fear the God who hears our every thought? How much more ought we to fear the God who has authority to put us forever into hell? Jesus says, Yes, I tell you, fear him. What do you think when you hear all this about the fear of the Lord? Imagine a bit uncomfortable, exposed, maybe afraid. You're not alone. We rarely talk about the fear of God at church. 
Some people are even seem to be embarrassed about this. That is actually in the Bible. But the fear of the Lord is so important to understand because it's the beginning of how we relate to God rightly. Proverbs 9 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Ecclesiastes 12 says that the conclusion, the end, when all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. In other words, fearing God leads to knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Fearing God is the beginning and the end of a good and blessed, wise life. Fearing God is so important that it actually should be the dominant characteristic of someone who calls himself a Christian. Put negatively, the Bible actually says that if you do not fear God, you're a fool. If you do not fear God, you will waste your life. If you do not fear God, you will perish. But then that the begs the question, right? What does fearing the Lord mean? What does fearing the Lord mean? Now, let me be really, really clear. When the Bible commands us to fear God, it does not mean run away from God. It does not mean hide from God, right? That's actually a sinful response to God, to run away from God. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did when they found out, when they realized that they're guilty of sinning against him, right? The fear of the Lord is not like the fear that little kids have of the dark. It's not like the fear that we have of death or the future, right? That's not what the Bible commands, not at all. Instead, the fear of the Lord, as R.C. Sproul puts it, is a sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. In other words, it means you take God really, really seriously. Think of it. God is bigger than the redwoods and mere woods. He's deeper than the cliffs of the Grand Canyon. He's louder than the crashing of the thunderstorm. He's wider than the Pacific Ocean. He's higher than the stars above. He's farther than even the utmost corners of the universe. And we're rightly in awe, in wonder, in fear of these beautiful and vast things. How much more than ought we to fear the uncreated one, the one who holds the stars in the very palm of his hand? When we respond to God by faith, fearing him doesn't drive us away from him, but actually makes us bow to him. Fearing him doesn't make us hide from him, but actually moves us to confess our sin to him. Fearing him doesn't make us hate him, it actually captivates us to worship him. My first semester of college, I went to this uh, missions conference in St. Louis, Missouri. And thousands and thousands of Christians descended upon this one city for the whole weekend, right? Like literally the streets, the grocery stores, the hotels, the restaurants, they're all flooded and crawling with a bunch of Christians. I was getting lunch by myself one day and I think it was like a sandwich shop or something. But I bumped into this guy, right? I bumped into this guy, we got talking because we're on the same age. And we figured out that, oh, we're both here for the conference. Cool, right? So we decided to eat together. He generously offered to say grace for us before we, we ate. And this is how he began his prayer. Hey, God. I wanted to slap him. Like I, I, I was so mad, right? Don't you know who you're talking to? You're talking to the king, the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the one who dwells in light and fire and whirlwind, and you're treating him like a chum in your math class. Hey, God. You're speaking to God. Who in the world do you think you are to talk to God like that? Now, thankfully, 18-year-old Keith did not slap
Hello. Can you hear me? You good? I'm back. Yeah. Well, that's something that'll never happen in person. Well, I guess maybe it could, because like if the speakers just die. So, yeah, there's always technical difficulties. <laughs> Thanks for being patient, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, Zach told me the last thing we talked about was I didn't slap the guy. Cool. Excellent. Excellent note to end on. <laughs> okay. So 18-year-old Keith did not slap him. Um, and I didn't, I didn't chew him out, even though I really wanted to. I'm sure mixing with my righteous anger was also some selfish pride. But regardless, his attitude towards God was one of someone who did not understand who God really was. There was no awe, no reverence, no taking God seriously. Seriously. The point is this. You need a bigger view of God. We don't believe in a teddy bear God who's cuddly towards sin. We don't believe in a God as my homeboy God who's always down to hang out with us whenever we make time with him. I can't respect that kind of God. I would not love him. I would certainly not worship him. We need a God who's wrathful, who gets angry when sinners kill and steal and destroy. We need a God who's strong to protect the weak and the poor. We need a God who's going to punish every evil deed with perfect justice. We need a God who's mighty, who's worthy of respect, who deserves our worship and our fear. In other words, we need the true and living God, the almighty king. This God loves you, but he's not like you. This king comes down to you, but he's not defined by you. He's unfathomable, uncontainable, unconquerable, indisputable, incomparable, incomprehensible. He is the holy God, and we must fear him. We must revere him. We must obey him. We must worship him as our king. Now, this is wonderful when you think about it, right? If you fear God, he's your king. That means you're no longer his enemy, but his citizen. To live in the fear of God means that you have this holy confidence that nothing and nobody can hurt you because no one is stronger than your God. It means you can live in the security and safety of his strong arms, invincible from any ultimate harm. It means that God the King is your strength, your rock, your fortress, your deliverer, your refuge, your shield, your stronghold, your salvation, as David says in Psalm 18. To fear the Lord is a great blessing. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. So fear the Lord. Not a, I run away from God because I'm scared of him fear. Not that kind of fear. We're not talking about that. That's not what the Bible talks about. But a worshipful fear. A fear that takes him seriously. A fear that says, God, you are almighty and you are king. A, a fear that treats him as the God he really is. But now listen to what this king says. And notice how surprising it is in verse 6. The king who sits on his throne introduces someone else who is his king. Verse 6 says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This one is God's chosen king, the Lord's anointed. The word translated anointed in verse 2 comes from the same word in Hebrew as the word translated Messiah, which means special chosen one. So God the king sets up his king on Zion. Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem in Israel. It's basically God's chosen place for his throne. Right? Now I don't have time to explain this. You can ask Zach um, about all this. But basically this refers to God's promise to King David, that David's descendant would reign over Israel from Jerusalem forever. So this is a Davidic king. That means someone who's a descendant of David. 
that God has put on his throne. So now we're in a bit of a puzzle, right? So in children's ministry, you learn, you learn about a lot of uh, Davidic kings. You know, there's Solomon and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Hezekiah, you know, et cetera, all those kings. So which one is Psalm 2 actually talking about? There's a bit of a puzzle here. Now we could speculate, but actually part three of our play zooms in on this king. And the king actually introduces himself. So look at part three. Scene three, behold the son. Now hear the king himself speak. There are three things to note. First, he's the son of God. Second, he's the ruler over all. Third, he's the judge of the wicked. Verse seven says that, I will declare, or I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this king says that God the Father told him, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Whoa, the son of God? We know who that is. He is Jesus, the only begotten son of the Father, who is himself God, God the Son. This verse also says that Christ is begotten today. Now, today doesn't mean like a day and time, like Monday or Tuesday or something like that. Instead, it's to be understood as begotten from the Father before all worlds, or translating to modern speech, forever the Son of the Father. Forever the Son of the Father. The Father continues to speak to the Son in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, God's king, Jesus, will rule from Jerusalem over the whole world. Right? Isaiah 9, that classic Christmas passage, says that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will reign. At the end of Matthew, you guys know this verse, Jesus tells the disciples that all authority has been given to who? To me. In heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Christ is king. He has all authority. He will be given David's throne in Jerusalem and will reign forever and ever. All authority, all nations, all peoples will be his forever. And thirdly, he's the judge of the wicked. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a promise of domination. A rod of iron is a scepter. It's an instrument of authority and king kingship. When you have a rod of iron versus a pottery jar, the rod always wins every single time. When Christ came to earth the first time, he came to save sinners. But he's coming back. Did you know that? And when Christ comes a second time, he's coming to judge sinners. He will punish them. The Apostle John saw a vision of the second coming of Christ. And he says, he describes it in this way, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fear of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the unbelievers were slain by the sword that came from his mouth, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. Jesus Christ is God's chosen king, the Son of the Most High. 
He will sit upon the throne of David. He will rule from Jerusalem over all the world. He will possess the earth. He will be king. His kingdom will have no end. This is why the kings of the earth tremble. They see this mighty king and they know they have no chance. No fortress, no shield, no refuge can hide them from the wrath of God to come. But that's bad news for us. We're sinners. We're in league with the kings, remember? And the wrath of God is coming. What are we going to do? Scene four, honor the king. Here the psalmist turns to speak directly to the kings and to us. And we actually see a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 10 with me. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. How? How are they going to be wise? What are they supposed to do? Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Joy comes in God, but as we look at his majesty, we tremble in awe. Verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, this command is really weird. Kiss, kiss the son. Like, wait, what? 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 It's a good translation. But it means honor the sun, honor the sun truly. Right? It's similar to how subjects in a European monarchy would kiss the hand of the king as a sign of loyalty. Right? We kiss the sign, kiss the hand of the king as a sign of loyalty. So in other words, this command means, this command means submit yourself to Christ. Lay down your foolish rebellion, come under the protection and the lordship of the true master, the true king. To summarize it, the psalmist is pleading with these kings. He's saying, lay down your crowns, stop your rebellion, come to him, because his wrath is inescapable. It's coming quickly. You must worship the true king. Now, as I said in the beginning, this is a kingly psalm, a kingly psalm. Scene one says, a scene one shows us the rebellion of the people. We saw the kings of foolishness, and we even saw the sin within our own rebellious hearts. Scene two showed us the fear of God, and it showed us that we have really good reason to fear God, for he is full of wrath against those who are in rebellion against him. Scene three showed us the anointed king, the son of God who is coming to rule, to reign, to crush his enemies. And scene four warns us to lay down our weapons against God and to come under his kingship. This has been a pretty tough, hard message, right? but this is not how the psalm ends. Look at the last line with me. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Him meaning the son. Blessed, happy, content, full are all people, kings, sinners, former rebels, ex-enemies, who put their refuge in him. A refuge is a place of hiding or a shelter. It's like a fortress or a stronghold or protection against some coming threat. But isn't that really interesting? The psalmist tells us to fear God, for his wrath is coming. And then the same psalm, he says, how good it is for those who hide themselves in this appointed king. How happy are those who hide themselves in God's son. The point is this, the God whom we fear and the God whom, who is our fortress is the same God. The God whom we fear and the God who is our fortress is the same God. And this is exactly what we've been learning in the book of Mark, right? Christ is the God who terrifies demons, who rebukes the winds and the waves, who scares the living daylights out of his disciples. 
And he's the God who has compassion upon the weak, who heals the suffering, who forgives and loves sinners. It's not two versions of the same God. This is God as he is. He's compassionate, gracious, the fountain of loving kindness and goodness. He forgives and loves in all of his ways. And he's wrathful, righteous, the judge of all, punishing and condemning the guilty and the wicked forever. This is God as he is. This is God as we need him. We're sinners, yet he's full of mercy. Our greatest problem is God. And our greatest savior, our only savior, is God. My question to you is, is this God your king? Who do you submit to? Who do you obey? Who do you revere? Who establishes the priorities of your life? Who has the final say on how you use your time or the kinds of friends you make or the desires of your very heart? Who has your loyalty? Who's first in your life, in every sphere of your life? Who do you run to for life and joy and salvation? God the Father, the King of all, sent God the Son, his chosen King, to earth to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to do the deeds of the kingdom, and to die. I mean, think of it. The God of all, the King of the nations, who will crush his enemies with a rod of iron, he first came to die for rebels and sinners, for traitors and enemies. He commands us to love his enemies, but he did it first. This King of all was scorned. They called him a son of Satan. They jeered his feminine lineage. They beat him with whips until water poured out of his body, until blood poured out of his body like water. They shoved a crown of thorns into his head and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! They slapped him in the face. They slammed the cross upon his back and they nailed down his hands and his feet. This king, my king, he bore it all. Like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. But the physical suffering was nothing compared to the suffering that was to come. On the cross, the king took the terror of the Almighty, the cup of wrath of God that we deserve for our sin and rebellion. He drank. He took the wrath. He drank the cup dry. He was innocent, blameless, righteous, truly deserving to be the anointed king. And yet he died instead of me. He died for my sin, for my salvation. He died to save me from the wrath of God. He's my king. Is he yours? Three days later, Christ rose from the dead as champion over sin, death, and the grave. He rose declaring to the heavens and the earth that he is the son of God with power. He rose never to die again, ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Victorious, victorious, the victorious one, victor overall. Now he waits for that day when he will return to earth as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords, where he will punish every evildoer, condemn every sinner, rescue every saint, reward every believer. And finally, his kingdom will come. In his kingdom, all things are made right, so we can rest in him. In his kingdom, we have our ultimate hope, so we can be courageous in him. In his kingdom, there's no mourning, no crying, no pain, no death. No tears, all those things have passed away. In his kingdom, he will be king, forever exalted, forever loved, forever feared. Is this your king? The psalm says to us, 
Now therefore, O sinners, be wise. Be warned, O sinners of the earth. Lay down your rebellion. Worship the Lord with fear. Rejoice in him with trembling. Submit to King Jesus, for he is a sacrifice for your sin. He took the wrath of God for you. How blessed are those all who hide themselves in him. To hide yourself in Christ means that you believe you're a sinner who deserves hell. But you trust him. You trust him. You believe him that he took the punishment you deserve for your sins. You believe that he rose from the dead in victory. And you no longer live for yourself. But by faith, by grace, you live for him, your king. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who are protected by him. How blessed are all who are beloved by him. He's coming. And this resurrected king extends his mercy to you. Hide yourself in him. And may you sing this song along with all the saints. Rock of ages, cleft. That means broken, hewn. Cleft from me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure pray with me father what a joy it is to be in your kingdom where we're loved we're protected we're known or where you even desire us that you would know our names father we thank you that you chose mercy that you chose, Lord, to send your Son, that he might die for sinners before he comes in his wrath and fury. Lord, be merciful to us. I ask that you'd save every sinner, Lord, that you desire, from, that you have known from before the foundation of the world. Lord, I pray that there would be not even one here who would think and lie to himself or herself that they really know you when they don't, Lord. And I also pray, Father, for those that really do trust you and fear you rightly and love you, that you give us confidence in you. That we would understand, Lord, that you are a good king. That you will never cast out any who comes to you in truth. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for your great righteousness. We thank you for your great perfections. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to see you as you really are and love you as you deserve. It's in Christ's perfect name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. And now it's time for a small group. <clears throat> Thanks, Justin. Hey, man. Thank you. How are you feeling?